Hello, memoir readers and writers. I've added some new merchandise to the Let's Talk Memoir store. I've got travel mugs and t-shirts and post-it notes and tote bags and all kinds of goodies for you and your favorite memoir lover. You can find a link to the Let's Talk Memoir store in three places, the show notes at the podcast app where you listen, my Instagram, which is at Ronit Plank in the bio, and that's a great place to get updates on the show anyway, so I hope you'll visit and then follow me, and also at ronitplank.com on the main page and also on the Let's Talk Memoir page. I am having a great time designing some of these items, but if you visit the store and you have an idea for something that you don't see there, please message me on Instagram or you can contact me on my website and I will make it for you. And all throughout January 2024, I am keeping this survey about how you listen to Let's Talk Memoir and what kind of memoir content you'd like open. So you can also find the link for that survey. It's about 10 questions in the show notes and chime in so I can start designing episodes for you with you in mind. And now on to the show. Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Eileen Borbach Collins, who writes true stories she wishes were fiction and fairy tales she wishes were true. Her essays have been widely published and received several prestigious awards. Two have been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Eileen's essay collection, Love in the Archives, a patchwork of true stories about suicide loss, is her new book. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you, Ronit. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm really grateful that I got a chance to read Love in the Archives, which is a beautiful and moving collection. Thank you. Can you share a little bit about this book for people who have not yet seen it? Sure. Well, it's a essay collection with themes of suicide loss, parenting, Judaism, and mental illness, and a failed interfaith marriage. The essays are not in any sort of chronological order. And I did what many people with essay collections will do and laid them out on the floor and mixed them up and switch them around. I finally had to stop doing that and just say, this is the order that they're going to be in and hope that it worked. Mm. Did you have an editor's eyes on that process? I didn't have a professional editor, but I've got some really smart friends. I wonder this idea of putting the pages on the floor and mixing them all around what was that process like for you? Did you enjoy it? Did you find it frustrating? In general, how did you go into that process? Well, it was a little of both. You know, I love cut and paste, and I I had a room of my own at the time where I could work and leave things out, but it did get a little disorganized after a while, and I switched it around so many times. This is probably the third or fourth iteration of this collection. Mm-hmm. And I removed, you know, I took out many of the essays that just didn't seem to work. 
and put new ones in as as they came along. In fact, the the book has had so many titles, I forgot what it was called for a while. <laughs> uh, I that actually has happened to me with certain certain pieces. That's really interesting. You you had titled it, but you're saying that if someone asked you what your new book was called, you might have to pause because you didn't remember. Yeah, and I I finally had to settle on one. And for a while, you know, I actually did a, a little survey. What do you think of these titles? And the title that I was going to use that several people had suggested was the title of, of one of the essays, How to Be the Mother of a Dead Girl. Mm-hmm. And people thought it was harsh mm. and made some, I mean, some people liked it. Some people thought it was too harsh. Well, it is harsh. Yeah. So... I didn't want to scare people off from it, and I didn't want it to seem glib, hmm. but mm-hmm. that that title worked for me for the longest time. Yeah, I can see that. I really can, and there is merit in a title like that because you're basically very clear from the title what the book is about. There's no, you're not mincing words at all. Yeah, and I I don't tend to use euphemisms. I don't tend to say that my daughter passed away or she, you know, went to heaven or any of those things. So that title to me worked. But again, I can see why it would be off-putting to some people. And, Mm -hmm. And people made suggestions like, why not how to be the mother of a child who passed away? And that was like, oh my God, no. (laughs) that's that's not you know that's not my voice and that's that's not what it is Mm. so I wound up with this title love in the archives and it was the title of one of the first essays that I had published Mm -hmm. and in terms of the different selections some were published separately before and actually maybe all of them were so I would love to know a little bit more about the path to getting the separate pieces into the world and how you knew you were ready to gather them into a manuscript. Well, that's interesting. When I when I first started submitting essays, I was looking for the lesser-known journals, thinking I'd have a better chance of getting something in there. So the funny story is, I, you know, I don't know them. I didn't know the journals. So I come across Glimmer Train, and I think, well, that's a silly little place, and they probably take everything you send them. <laughs> so I sent an essay to Glimmer Train, and then I checked submittable every five minutes for a couple mm-hmm. of weeks. Mm-hmm. And shortly after I submitted that, they closed the journal. And I always said it was my essay that made them do it. <laughs> but also, isn't Glimmer Train fiction only? I don't know. I mean, I was yeah. just like randomly submitting <laughs> yeah. things to. So, I, and and also so, for anyone who doesn't know, Glimmer Train was a well-respected and loved journal, and and very it, well. It wasn't respected. hard. It wasn't yes. that easy to get in, which is why not you, at you all. Yeah. So you're yeah. saying that you thought it was just a silly little journal. Is that's why that's funny, right? So, I had yeah. no idea what it was. I hadn't heard of many of these. You know, I hadn't written. I wasn't in that writing group of people. I didn't know anyone who wrote. And so what happened then, I was very fortunate fairly early on to get a couple of essays published and to win a couple of contests. And then 
I remember when I got the first Pushcart nomination. It was way, it was late at night, and I got this email, and I just was sobbing, and I, I didn't know who to tell because there was nobody around. My husband was asleep. The dogs were asleep, <laughs> and so I put out an email, and everybody was like, "Oh, congratulations!" And then a week later, I got another one, <laughs> and so that. Those two things just gave me the confidence boost that I needed to continue because, and, and even to eventually call myself a writer. Mm-hmm. How many of these pieces are fresh to the book or are they all previously published? No, I think there's about a third of them that are not published. Mm-hmm. And how did you know, I am ready to make this an actual book? When, like, what put that idea into your head? I think, Ronit, it was when I couldn't stand to look at it another minute. Hmm. I had just spent so much time and and so much emotion went into writing these, and I just thought I've got to I've got to be done with this because mm-hmm. it's all consuming, and. And I, you know, it was like when I, when I got a publisher, it was like a weight was off my shoulders. I, you know, I can, I can get this out and I put so much of my life into it and so much of my love into it that I needed, I needed to step back from it and say, okay, it's, it's ready to go. Mm-hmm. And was a book something that you knew you wanted to create from this work when you were writing the essays after a certain point did you have a sense oh I think I could have a book or was it just essay after essay I'm very curious about that because it is I think there are different ways to approach it and one way would be let me keep publishing and eventually I have a book or maybe one day we look up as writers and realize my goodness I have so many pages I can create a book out of this it's I think it was a little of both and again, I I really had no confidence as a writer when I started out. So I wasn't thinking book. I was mm-hmm. thinking, gee, I'd love to get this essay published. And then as I got more confident and I thought, and I had friends who were publishing and I thought, yeah, maybe I can do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it becomes something that you're doing, right? I think the thing about being a, a later bloomer writer, maybe, because I feel like I'm a later bloomer writer, and I don't know if you wrote when you were an undergrad and in your earlier life, but I think that I just started to do these things and start to submit, and no one's really showing you how to do it. You just kind of pick things up along the way. And that seems like what you were doing, and then you figured it out yourself. I'm sure no one helped you write your first cover letter to a magazine. You probably figured it out yourself, right? Yeah, I tend to just go and and do it. Yeah, and then you realized you wanted the book in the world. And I wanna talk about the subject of your book because it is really difficult material. And I don't mean that it shouldn't be something we read, I think it's, really important to read material like this it's very very moving and difficult at times and you write in this one section quote people often ask why 
What made your child do such a thing? With no known causation to suicide, we have no way to understand, no, quote, this happened, therefore that happened, end quote. We may say it was because of some event, some tragic twist of fate, but that same thing happened to thousands who are still alive. Although we may always look for the why, we will never find it. The only why I am sure of is why I write this pain. I write because it's mine to tell, and what else am I to do with it? I live it and know many others are living it too. And I'm curious about your experience of scrutinizing the loss of Lydia on the page, what it's been like for you over time. The, the loss is so palpable here and your love for Lydia is too. It's on every page. So I'm curious about the process of writing work like this and revising it. What, how does that do, what does that do for you as a person, as a mother, as a writer over time? I think, you know, that processing the whole thing, and I wouldn't say that this is a therapeutic, and yet, in a sense, it, I, it is. But I think the main reason I wanted to write it is so people would know her. Most of the people I know now, because I've moved to a different state twice from where I lived when Lydia was alive, most of my friends never knew her. And I kind of need them to. Mm-hmm. So I think in writing this book, in, in telling not just about how she died, but who she was. And I mean, she was such a character. <laughs> and the people who did know her will appreciate that. But the people who never met her, I hope get a sense of who she was. You know, I, I have to tell you that I really did. And um, I'm happy to know that that was something you wanted to achieve when you were writing it, because I do feel like I got such a sense of your daughter. Well, I'm can, glad to hear that. Yes. Can you share a little bit about her age when you lost her? And then if you'd like, you can introduce the piece that you're going to read and read it. Sure. Lydia was 15 when she died. It was just about a month after her 15th birthday. And she had suffered with depression for several years. She was she was actually a really happy little girl. And she was hit by a car, a terrible accident, when she was nine went through lots of surgery, lots of rehab, was in a wheelchair for a year or so. And on the other side of that, she just had a whole change. And I don't know how much of that was due to the accident or how much of it would have happened. And, you know, an ugly divorce and whatever, as again, we'll never know. But um, she was very young. And and yet she was very old. And you can take as much time as you need and take care of yourself. And if you end up not wanting to finish this excerpt, that is completely up to you. Well, thank you. I will try to. And um, <laughs> I do, you know, as I mentioned, sometimes I still cry when I read things. But, but I think that my book has a lot of... Um, humor in it too oddly enough Mm -hmm. so it's been more than 20 years since Lydia died I could never have written this book 
um, a year or two years even after she died. Mm-hmm. But with having that distance from it and looking back at who she was and how what a funny, insightful, and gifted person she was. I mean, she would probably laugh at this whole situation that I'm sitting here in a closet um, with earbuds on talking to you on the computer. (laughs) She'd probably get a kick out of it. But I would, yes, I will read that passage. It's from the essay called How to Be the Mother of a Dead Girl. I wondered if your soul still lingered, as the rabbi had said. I talked to you, offering what little comfort I had to give. I placed a few of your treasures in the casket, things I thought you might want, a piece of your baby blanket, some shells we'd collected on a trip to Florida, your glasses, a half-smoked spliff I'd found hidden in with the shells. I sat with my fingers as close to you as I could get them. If the hole in the casket had been bigger, I may have tried to crawl through it, to touch you one last time. I sat there until they came to roll the casket into the room full of people who'd come to mourn you. All the while, I told you stories. I asked you to stay close, to keep in touch, as though you were heading to summer camp. I had a fleeting thought that Maybe I should have packed stationery and postage stamps in there with you. So began my strange, but as I would later learn, hardly unique dance in and out of reality. I started creating fantasy worlds where you lived and laughed, where we never argued or had a disagreement about curfew or piercings. A world in which you graduated from high school, went off to college and adventures and wrote letters home. Sometimes I even wrote those letters, and when I did, they always ended with, Love you, Mom. For more than 20 minutes the night you died, I had breathed my breath into your lungs and pumped your chest as my tears fell into your eyes. Now, I wondered, since that didn't work, could I write you back to life? Back to being my real, earthly daughter. I'd write both sides of a dialogue and have you say whatever I wanted to hear. Could we witness another emergence of the 17-year periodical cicadas that had once delighted you? Could I go to your high school graduation? Read the novels you'd write? See your injured leg finally heal? Would we be close again? Could I write us all the way back to love and not just this relentless longing that substitutes? Could I take you shopping in the thrift stores you loved and let you get whatever you wanted? Cook vegetarian meals you would eat? Admire the tattoos you would finally be old enough to get without my consent? I didn't know how to be the mother of a dead girl. Could I write you back into being? You're still here, in my mind, in my heart, in my cells. I just have to bring you back to life to clone you with my memories and my pen. But what if I get it wrong? What if I write you into just what I want you to be? What if I'm holding you captive and you really need to go on your way to do other things, to be someone else's child or someone's mother or a lion, a goddess, a ray of pure light that will blind us if we look too closely? 
What if every time I visit the cemetery I disturb you, hold you back, thwart the progress of your journey? What if every time I brush the leaves off the bronze marker that reads artist, writer, supernova, every time I run my finger over the tiny flute that replaces the dash between your birth and death dates, I annoy you as much as if I'd suggested you clean your room? Those stages of grief they told us about were never meant to be used the way they are, like a prescription or post-operative instructions. Take two tablespoons of denial for several days. Then swallow a teaspoon of anger three times daily for ten days. Bargain. Take deep cleansing breaths. Overcome the depression. Look at the bright side while counting your blessings. Settle right in. Accept your new normal. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Repeat until one day I pause catch myself still in this never-ending cycle, and hear you laughing along with me, the sound like a breeze through the palms now in my backyard, far from the city where I left you, but never left you. A dragonfly swoops in and hovers near my head before performing an aerial ballet inches from my face. Maybe it's trying to teach me, finally, how to be the mother of a dead girl. Thank you, Eileen. You you include in this book work about your own mother's stroke and mental health and decline and what you would have done differently as a daughter if you'd had the chance. And something struck me, which was this idea of regret and and, and how we come to understand regret as it pertains to loss and the way that we go back and think and try to figure things out and promises to ourselves of what we could do differently. And so I'm curious, after all these years, what you've come to understand about regret and loss. Wow. Um, It makes me think of a Brene Brown quote, regret is one of our most powerful reminders that reflection and change are necessary. And I think that's what writing memoirs is about, reflection and change and growth. And, and I think that's the essence of memoir. And I, I, would, I would think that any parent who's lost a child, whether to suicide or accident or illness, will tell you that there's, there's regret involved. Um, we would think if only I'd acted sooner, if I, if I hadn't let them ride with friends, if I'd pushed harder and gotten that diagnosis earlier. So all of those things. And it, at some point, you write that out so many times and you, you finally come to realize that no matter what you did, you were not in control. And that's something that that hits me every year in September is Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month. And a lot of times when people lose a child to suicide or, or any loved one to suicide, they want to be an advocate for suicide prevention. And I never saw that in myself. I wanted to be more of an advocate for people who have lost someone to suicide because 
the prevention part is so hard for me to get my head around because I thought if I could have prevented Lydia's suicide, I would have done anything. Um, you know, and she had all of the things that, you know, we had good insurance. She had a, a therapist. She had medication, hospitalizations, um, and still we could not keep her. And so the, the idea of regret is, is just, you know, it's part of who I am. Thank you for that reflection. How did you care for yourself while working on this material, which I know spans so many years and you might even still be working on material like this? I'm curious how you took care of yourself and when did you push yourself and when did you know, okay, how did you know when you needed to pause? I would I, I would also write some fun things in between. I would write stories about my son uh, the day he blew up the kitchen, which was actually a funny day. And um, I wrote a story about his vasectomy, that was, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, and the other thing that I did was I dig in the dirt. I loved to dig in the dirt. And I had a big garden. It was in Florida. And I would, I would like go out and dig in the dirt and plant things and float around in my pool and get out and dig in the dirt some more. And then I would write about digging in the dirt. And so that was how I cared for myself. I, you know, my garden and my floating. Floating is like amazing. Hmm. All you need is a dollar store raft and a little pool. Um, you know, it can be a three foot deep kiddie pool or or even shorter and you just can float in it it's amazing mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about this to ask you but I want to know I'm curious if you could share a little bit of how your son is doing in in the wake of losing a sibling well we didn't really discuss it for years and I think one of the things he was afraid he was afraid to talk about it, afraid he would upset me. And there is a there's a essay in the book called Lies My Mother Told Me, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's about, you know, the things I told him when he was a child, you know, the lies we always tell our kids. And then when I went to visit him in San Francisco as, you know, he's an adult, and we went to the pot shop and we came home. And we talked about Lydia, and it was it was good. And so I think I wrote that story from Daniel's perspective. And I do that in these essays. I, like a lot of it is first person, but then I write in I write a story from Daniel's perspective or from Lydia's perspective. And so I guess that's fiction, but it's what I do. Mm -hmm. And Daniel, you know, I would never publish anything about him without his permission. But he, you know, he's pretty laid back about it. Mm -hmm. I think you and I connected some years ago when I was writing that article about sharing private yes. details and photos of our children. And you chimed in for that one because of that vasectomy story you wrote about your son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So what memoirs have helped you along the way that that you might want to recommend? Well, oddly enough, Rooney. Are you going to tell me you don't like memoir? No, no, (laughs) not at all. But the funny thing is, and I'm reading so many of them lately, so many new ones that are great. Mm -hmm. But oddly enough, and, and I have to say, one of my favorite memoirs is Jenny Lawson broken in the best possible way. And she writes about serious topics, sad things, and it's so damn funny. <laughs> I mean, I can wake up the dogs laughing reading this book. <laughs> and and I just love the way she does that. And I didn't discover her until, you know, mine was done. But I thought, boy, I would have liked to put more funny stuff in my book. Although I don't think it would have gone over that well because, you know, suicide and child loss, there's nothing funny about it. Mm. But when I write about Lydia, she was so funny. (laughs) So there has to be some of that. But yeah, Jenny Lawson's book and David Sedaris, one of my favorites of his is Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim. Mm -hmm. And so here I'm writing, you know, sad things and, and I love these funny memoirs and I have to think uh, my favorite I would have to say my favorite book of all times is not a memoir it's The Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kidd and it's written in first person in a child's voice and it's so memoir-ish and yet it's you know it's fiction I hope but uh, that's my favorite book in the world Mm-hmm. Thank you. And when it comes to advice you might want to share with writers working on their memoirs, what would you like to to say about that? Oh, my God. Find your people. Mm-hmm. Find your people. I, I had a writing buddy when I was in Florida, and we would share writing. And, you know, I think he would just put mine through Grammarly or something and tell me I missed a comma. But... You know, one day I sent him a piece, and it was it was the essay "Phone Home," mm-hmm. and he came back, and and I was just floored and and really filled with shame after what he said. He said something like, "Give us a break, for God's sake! Get over it. When are you gonna, you know, like write write about something else? Don't write this stuff. Nobody wants to read this crap anymore." Oh, my goodness. And I just, like, read that email, and I shut my computer down, and I just sobbed. And I thought, this is awful. I can never go back to that writing group. I've, like, everybody hates me. Everybody hates my writing. And, but I had met some women at a um, workshop, and we got into our own group, and they were like, no, this is good (laughs) stuff. Um, and I think you just have to find your people mm-hmm. and they're out there. So don't, you know, that's my advice is don't, don't do it alone. Don't do it all alone. Mm. And thank goodness that you found you, you decided to work with those women and you didn't listen to this man. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> my goodness. So Eileen, where can people find you and your book? Well, 
I'm on all those places, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we met on Facebook, right? Originally, yeah, probably. maybe. And, yeah. and Twitter, which poor Twitter. Um, <laughs> you know, the funny thing. I actually, <laughs> I just think it's funny because every time I ask these questions, my, my different guests will say different things about Twitter or X. It's sort of like a litmus test. What were you going to say? Well, when I first got on Twitter, it was like pandemic time or something like that a little before but I never used it and then when the pandemic hit I got on it and I had like three followers for a long time and then I really liked it it became my favorite and then everybody left me there but not everybody but then just this past weekend I had a tweet that like was about somebody else and it had like over a thousand likes and shares and stuff, which for me, you know, if I had five, it's it's something. <laughs> so, and I love Twitter because it's got, you know, I, I can see news things and, but I know that, you know, I'm not doing any of the new things. So I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and I have a website that's, and I just use my whole name for everything because if I just used Eileen Collins, I'm an astronaut. <laughs> and if I just use Eileen Forbach, I'm a actress in Pennsylvania somewhere. So I had to stick my middle name, my original maiden name in there as my middle name and use it. Yeah, so we'll find you there. So I'll have all those, the, the books that you recommended and your contact information in the show notes. I want to thank you for the work that you do and for being brave and strong and I guess vulnerable enough to share all of this material that is so much a part of you and so close to who you are with others. Thanks, Renee, and thanks for letting me introduce you to my daughter. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.